Welcome to the Agent Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at agentvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. This is the latest in my increasingly misnamed minisodes that seem to be almost the same length as the main narrative shows. Still, everyone seems to be happy with the longer minisodes, so I'm not too worried. Before we get cracking today, I want to say a huge thank you to listener David for his generous PayPal donation. It is really, really appreciated. When I started out, I assumed that hosting would be the most expensive thing about podcasting. But it turns out that building an entire history library of books, journals and online subscriptions is the really expensive part. Even when you buy second-hand books by the cartload. So thank you for the donation. It will go on more research materials. In future, I might start looking at doing a Patreon campaign so that members of our community can support the show. I'm still absolutely committed to it being ad-free and free to download. I'm thinking perhaps maybe some audio recordings of Victorian poetry and novels. So watch this space. I'd also like to say thank you to listener Billardito for the review on iTunes. Again, it is great to hear that listeners are enjoying the direction the show is travelling and I'm hoping that continues to be the case on our journey deeper into the Victorian age. This week we are going to cover one of the darker events in the Victorian era. Not something that springs from deliberate nastiness or the brutal working conditions. No, we are going to talk about an almost universal experience in human history, an accident that turns into a disaster, that aching loss that seems to come like a bolt from the blue, unexpected and heartbreaking. One of those times when you've done nothing wrong, but you or your loved ones are going to die. In Victorian Britain, this kind of tragedy was all too common. Health and safety laws were rudimentary. Technology was often pushed beyond its limits. Professional rescue services were unheard of. And profit was routinely placed over human life. A happy crowd who were going on a day trip down the River Thames on board the paddle steamer, the SS Princess Anne, thought they were having nothing more than an amazing and relaxing day out. What a ship she was. A sleek 219 foot, 171 ton paddle steamer. Not a cheap old boat run by a dodgy transport company, a floating coffin or a tub as they were called. No, she seemed like a magnificent ship, named after Queen Victoria's daughter and formerly used to transport the Shah and his retinue. She still had the markings from the trips and was affectionately known up and down the river as the Shah's boat. If you look at pictures of her, you'd think of her as a ship with 
fine lines, almost greyhound-like. The weather that day was perfect. What could go wrong? They had an experienced captain and a competent pilot on what was thought to be a well-built ship going on a short pleasure cruise. Yet, by the next morning, hundreds and hundreds of people would be dead. This was one of the worst disasters in the history of the River Thames, at the height of Victorian power, at the heart of the Empire. Let's start our journey with understanding a bit more about the River Thames. She is an old river, and very well understood. She has provided the beating heart of London for centuries, defining and shaping the city. She isn't anything like as large as many of the great rivers of the world, nor does she have raging rapids or waterfalls. The whole river is over 215 miles long, or even longer depending on where you're taking your measurement. It starts as a gentle river in the Cotswolds, with various places claimed as the precise source. It meanders through Oxford, and for most of its upper course, is simply idyllic, collecting various tributaries along the way. It has inspired pastoral scenes and the wind in the willows. It is the river of regattas and picnics and straw boater hats. For a stretch, it is joined by the Great Western Railway Line, London to Penzance, as it runs through a beautiful valley with beech woods rising to either side. All in all, it is a glimpse into southern England as it imagined itself. The Thames changes character in its lowest course as it enters London. At a glance from the Houses of Parliament down the embankment, she seems like the mildest of rivers in the world. These looks are dangerously deceiving. From Teddington onwards, the Thames can be an extremely deadly river. It is actually a tidal estuary and has an enormous range of tides. By the time you reach London Bridge, the range of the height of the tides can be up to 22 feet at some times of year. That can result in hidden currents of immense strength. It is also littered with wrecks that can be dangerous at the wrong tidal levels. Some stretches go through bridges or other constraints, causing massive changes in the speed of the hidden currents and creating vicious undertows that can suck people under with no hope of getting back to the surface. The tidal surge can flow upriver, causing massive flooding on some occasions, whilst local rainstorms can cause flooding in the other direction, creating massive storm surge flows of rain down the river and out to sea. And Victorian London was one of the great trading ports of the empire, so the Thames was often packed with ships, barges, skiffs, ketches, steamers, paddle steamers, coal hauliers, rowboats, small yachts and all kinds of other traffic. Smoke or fog could lead to complete loss of visibility. Still, the river offered a fast route from west to east and back. On good days, it was free from the choking air, the smoke from the city's chimneys. That's not to say it was clean. Even after the clean-up, following the great stink of the 1850s, the river 
remained polluted in many ways that today we would consider a lethal hazard. It wasn't just human waste, but all kinds of industrial waste that went into the Thames. Getting a mouthful of water from the Thames could be lethal, even as the threat of cholera was tackled. Indeed, by 1950, the Thames was officially a dead river from the point of view of natural life. And what a different London those day travellers on the Princess Alice would have looked out on compared to today. It would have been smaller, yet somehow perhaps have felt busier and more optimistic than the defeated and decaying modern city. There was rampant inequality. Crime was far worse and pollution levels were staggering. Jobs were plentiful. The economy was booming. The empire was expanding. Wages were rising and new technologies were increasing per capita wealth and health, causing inequality to decline. Food was becoming increasingly cheaper and more readily available. Slums were cleared. Trade unions legalised and given increased rights. Mass education acts passed and public health measures were given a high priority. All in all, it seemed, from the point of view of the working population, that the economy was booming. Or, according to other historians and economists, the 1870s was a period of British decline, where the economy suffered from a lack of investment, low levels of profit, and increased foreign competition, leading to business owners earning less money at the expense of improved conditions and more food for workers, therefore reducing the effectiveness of capital investments and failing to maximise shareholder value. This in turn, it was felt, was leading to relative economic decline, leaving British businesses unable to modernise, which was essential since most of her competitors had the benefit of high protectionist tariffs to allow them to grow their infant industries, effectively shutting the free trade-oriented British out of their markets, forcing the British to an increasingly unhealthy dependence on imperial markets. Now obviously that little economic nugget deserves a series of episodes and could happily be picked apart from both sides, so we will leave it there. All you really need to know is that day trips were becoming more affordable and were done by the upper working class and the lower middle class at more and more exotic locations, sometimes by train, other times by paddle steamer, as disposable income was increasingly available. It wasn't just the people and the economy of London in September 1878 that was different. The geography of the city was very different too. The Stone Bridge at Kingston had opened in 1828. London Bridge had been rebuilt in 1831 and was a magnificent structure, far superior to the ugly metal monstrosity built in 1973 that currently blights London. Regent's Park was there, and so was the National Gallery. The magnificent Gothic Parliament buildings, along with Westminster Abbey, would have been visible. And of course the ancient buildings of the Tower of London could be easily spotted. During the early and middle 19th century, 
London had seen an explosion of parks, theatres, railway stations, museums, tunnels, underground lines, markets and famous bridges. Some great landmarks were still missing though. There was no Tower Bridge in 1878, nor was there a Natural History Museum or the Harry Potter-esque Royal Courts of Justice. The Albert Docks hadn't opened. Indeed, there was no HMS Belfast, no London Eye or Oxo Tower or the sci-fi looking shard. On the bright side, at least Londoners were spared the horror of the South Bank and the Royal Festival Hall, buildings of such unsurpassed brutalist concrete crap that they suck the soul out of those unfortunates who gaze on them. They remain, like all brutalist architecture, a blight on civilization, and deserve nothing but utter destruction. But I digress. The Princess Alice was travelling on a fine day. Aboard her were passengers who had paid the steep price of two shillings, not unaffordable, but for the better-off sort of workers. Parents helped excited children aboard. By the time she left, she was noted as being absolutely packed. Even the decks were standing room only, and it was observed that moving was difficult, with some people completely wedged in. Princess Alice was taking over 900 passengers down to Rucheville Gardens in Gravesend. This was a hugely popular destination for day-trippers down the Thames before the railways eventually killed it off. It was well known enough to be mentioned by Gilbert and Sullivan, Thackeray and P.G. Wodehouse. It was a lovely, wholesome family day out. Some passengers went off to Gravesend itself or enjoyed other local activities. The return trip saw tired families ready to relax. Between 700 to 900 people were on board. But there's no formal passenger list. They were mostly below decks enjoying food, wine, singing and entertainments. Why not? It was a relaxing evening. Captain Grinstead even had his wife and children on board. The Princess Alice's chef was a last-minute addition to the crew. The appropriately named Alfred Thomas Merriman. A picture of him that we have is of a jovial-looking man with a huge moustache grinning at the camera. He had four children at home and he needed the extra cash from the trip. He was a happy man as he went up on deck somewhere between 1920 hours and 1940 hours and was enjoying his trip. Within a few minutes, he would be fighting for his life. Shortly before, we're not quite sure when, a small, almost inconsequential series of events would lead to a tragedy of immense scale. On the bridge of the Princess Alice, Captain Grinstead and the crew were about to make some terrible decisions as they approached their destination at Woolwich Pier, bearing towards the small wooden paddle steamer. Coming out of the fog was the SS Bywell Castle, an 800-ton collier, travelling unloaded and high in the water. What happened next would be the subject of inquests, newspaper reports, books, memorials, paintings and even songs. I'm betting most people have never even heard of it. 
even though it's actually been covered in national news recently for its anniversary. I'm going to quote from an account on the Royal Museums of Greenwich website, quote, Sometime between 1920 and 1945, counts vary, when the Princess Alice had rounded Tripcock Point and entered Galleon's Reach, passengers saw a large vessel, the Bywell Castle, loom close, and heard William Grinstead, Princess Alice's master, call, Ease her! Stop her! Where are you coming to? Good God, where are you coming to? On board the Bywell Castle, Christopher Dix, her pilot, said, My God, that man is starboarding his helm. Stop her! Harder port! Reverse engines, full speed! End quote. I'm going to give you some really, really important information. I might well have to put it on the website and refer to it again in future episodes about nautical events. I'm going to quote the internationally standard-recognised definition of port and starboard. Port and starboard never change. They are unambiguous references that are independent of a mariner's orientation, and thus mariners use these nautical terms instead of left and right to avoid confusion. When looking forward towards the bow of a ship, port and starboard refer to the left and right sides respectively. In the early days of boating, before ships had rudders on their centre lines, boats were controlled using a steering oar. Most sailors were right-handed, so the steering oar was placed over or through the right side of the stern. Sailors began calling the right side the steering side, which soon became starboard by combining two old English words, steer, meaning steer, and board, meaning the side of a boat. As the size of boats grew, so did the steering oar, making it much easier to tie a boat up to a dock on the side opposite the oar. This side became known as larboard, or the loading side. Over time, larboard, too easily confused with starboard, was replaced with port. After all, this was the side that faced the port, allowing supplies to be ported aboard by porters. End quote. There's another key piece of information, and the best definition I've found is on the Queensland Maritime Safety Association. Quote, A boat must always be navigated on the starboard side, that's the right, of a river or channel. Each boat alters course to starboard and passes port to port. Always assume this situation exists. A boat approaching from your starboard side has right of way. End quote. So, this is now a well-known international standard for boats and for bottles of port at dinner. It was an international standard for steamships at sea 
in the 1870s, and crucially, it had been incorporated into a conservancy bylaw for the River Thames. But at the time of the Princess Alice, it was still a relatively recent regulation to the River Thames traffic. It was frequently ignored as time and money savings of going in a straight line point to point across shipping lanes was the common culture on the Thames. Still, it was a regulation, and the captain of the Princess Alice chose to steer towards the centre of the river, then further to the side that the Bywell Castle was steering towards, rather than steering over to port to keep closer to the bank and expecting the Bywell Castle to do the same. You need to be very careful when reading accounts from ships because terminology changes and what is meant by an expression like, say, helmed port might depend on the time period in question and the ship. So be very clear and careful about what you read when you read accounts of the actions and orders of ships' crews in histories so that you are very sure what was meant by what was said. Prior to 1934, for example, helm orders were identical for tillers and steering wheels. They were given as if the ship had a tiller, where you turn the tiller opposite to the direction you wish to turn. So, for instance, to turn to port, you would have to give an order of hard as starboard, which should result in the helmsman repeating the order hard as starboard and then turning the ship's wheel to starboard to make the ship's bow turn to port. It's counterintuitive pretty fundamental. Now, the real question is what was in Captain Grinstead's mind at this point? The two ships, Princess Alice and the Bywell Castle, were going to round the point and would come around it in danger of a head-to-head collision. Now, should he keep on to the centre of the channel in the belief that both ships would pass close to each other but miss? And any change he makes might create an accident in the uncertainty of a turn where there's a head-to-head approach. After all, if only one ship decides to turn, then a close pass can become a collision. But if neither ship turns and they are too close to pass, then they will drive into each other head-on. Decisions had to be made quickly and ships are very unforgiving. According to the textbook, both captains should have attempted to move their ships to the right as they were facing each other. Basically, both the bows of both ships would have turned away from each other. They would then have passed down the left-hand side of the other vessel. That's the textbook response to a head-to-head encounter as per that definition I quoted earlier, especially as neither ship had started by keeping close to the starboard river bank. This would have then brought them past each other, provided they had enough space for their turning circles and were moving quickly enough. A ship moving too slowly 
can lose her ability to be handled and manoeuvred. And it seems this is what the Baiwan Castle attempted. And when her captain realised it was impossible, he ordered the engines reversed in a desperate attempt to stop. It appears he hoped he could at least pass astern of the Princess Alice. That is, by stopping, he would stay in place and she would go across the front of him and he would go behind her. But to his horror, Princess Alice again changed her heading to cross his. The attempt to avoid the crash was now hopeless. Was the Princess Alice expecting him to keep to the mid-channel or to give way somehow? If so, this was delusional. A ship isn't like a car, hasn't got brakes and it can't turn in a tight circle. Sailing vessels can turn into the wind to stop the sails being blown, but until they can spend their momentum they will still move and be pushed by the tide. But a propeller vessel can't even do that. If she immediately cuts her engines, she will still move. But if she does cut her engines, she can't steer. The more massive the ship, the harder she is to move in the first place. And once she is moving, the harder she is to stop. Baiwan Castle had done everything she could. She had tried to follow regulations and steer away. She had backed her engines and given warnings. Still the Princess Alice turned in front of her. There were no standard whistle signals to tell a vessel which way you were going. Perhaps Captain Harris was fixated on the old customs of navigating the Thames, whereas as expected, a heavier ship like a collier would need more deep water and would stay mid-channel, so the lighter ship with less need for deep water should turn towards the bank, making for a section perhaps with less tidal current. Whatever was in his mind, instead of avoiding the impact, the Princess Alice was caught abeam by the massive 900-ton Baiwan Castle. She sliced through the paddle steamer like an axe through kindling, hitting her just behind her paddle wheels, halfway along her length. The Princess Alice was smashed in half, and all hell broke loose. Water flooded the Princess Alice, and she went down in two halves in a matter of moments. Hundreds of desperate passengers fought frantically to escape. A survivor, Mr. G. W. Lineker, reported, quote, It was eventide, and the loud laughter was succeeded by the wildest and most pitiful squeaks. Quote, it was eventide, and the loud laughter was succeeded by the wildest and most pitiful shrieks that could still rend the air. All of us seemed to drop down like skittles. Then there was a frightful struggle on the deck. Men, women and children rolled over and clutched and tore at each other. And all through were the ceaseless screaming and appeals for help. How, in such a sudden and unexpected catastrophe, could help be given? End quote. But the crowds were jammed in tight. Children screamed and desperate parents even tried to batter their way through the crowds to try to grab loved ones. It appears that within three to five minutes, 
the whole ship had sunk. Most Victorians were unable to swim, and those who made it into the river were often weighed down by the heavy clothes that were typical of the time. In any case, the vast bulk of people below decks were doomed. In a cruel irony, the London River Police, who had to work the river, were trained to swim, and one of them, Constable King, was aboard the Princess Alice that night with his wife and children. He swam and survived, but they died. His colleagues would have had to retrieve the bodies for him. I don't know how someone can recover from that psychologically. Another police officer was aboard the Princess Alice, according to the Thames River Police Museum. Quote, Thames Division Constable PC 56 John Lewis, an ex-Royal Naval diver, stationed aboard the station ship Royalist at Blackwell, who had taken the outing aboard the Princess Alice with his wife and two sons. All happened to be on the deck at the time of the collision and jumped together into the mass of bodies struggling in the river. The constable caught hold of his wife's hand and swam with a few others ashore onto the Erith Marsh, only then to discover the woman he had rescued to be a total stranger. Both the woman and Constable Lewis lost their entire families that evening. End quote. In a further irony, one of Captain Grinstead's sons was ashore working at the time and realised that he had lost his father and brother. He was later given the ship's ensign and joined the River Police Thames Division himself, passing the ship's flag down the family till it was eventually donated to the Thames Police Museum. Chef Merriman was one of those pitched into the water. He was lucky and survived. He clung to some floating wreckage. Then, when it became swamped with desperate survivors, he swam for the Bywell Castle and was fortunate enough to be able to grab one of the ropes her crew was throwing down for survivors. Meanwhile, boats lowered from the Baiwan Castle worked furiously to pick people up from the water. One newspaper account of a Mr King states he attempted to climb to the rear of the doomed paddle steamer, then finding it hopeless, jumped into the water in a desperate attempt to swim free, dragging his child with him. Eventually, he had to let the child go, or they would both have died. And that's a choice I think most of us would pray to never have to make in our lives. Whole families drowned together. Imagine the horror of trying to comfort. It's terrified. Imagine the horror of trying to deal with a six-year-old child, terrified and desperate as the water floods in. What do you say to your child? as you die together. What about where there are whole families together? Who got split up? How many of those children drowned, alone and terrified in the dark? In a macabre horror, a diver was sent down to the wreck, and he testified that he found bodies that were so pressed together in parts of the ship as they tried to escape, they were still upright. And because of the water quality and the state of diving equipment at the time, Remember he was diving blind and investigating by touch. And those weren't the only horrors that night. Some swimmers 
had managed to grab onto the anchor chain of the Bywell Castle. As the ship was starting to drift away from the collision site, Captain Harrison of the Bywell Castle gave the order to drop anchor so that the ship could stay in place and help with the rescue. The anchor plunged to the bottom of the Thames, taking its desperate hangers-on with it, their hoped-for salvation, killing them. Now, so far we've looked at the basic narrative. We haven't really started pulling things apart a bit more. It is almost as if it was an unavoidable accident caused by human error. But ask yourself a few questions. Firstly, perhaps, why weren't uniform shipping regulations in force around the UK? This was the foremost maritime nation on Earth. Failure to standardise the regulations and enforce compliance is a regulatory failure. It is one we will see time and time again in maritime history throughout the show in many famous sinkings we will cover. Second is whether the Bywell Castle was making too much speed in the fog without a sufficient lookout. Third is why the Princess Alice decided not to turn to port but to follow the older London customs despite the changes in regulations. Fourth is to ask why the owners and captain of the Princess Alice were willing to run her with so many passengers. Fifth, though, is perhaps the hardest, and that is to ask whether sewage played more of a role than we give credit for. The last point is interesting. The water was unusually filthy at this point of the Thames, To cure the great stink of the river in the 1850s, politicians had allowed the outflows built downriver in the poorest East End stretches to discharge sewage and other waste. At Woolwich, just at the point of the sinking, was the great northern outfall. Gallons and gallons of human waste and chemical waste, animal waste from multiple sources was pumped into the water. A chemist in 1878 stated, At high water, twice in 24 hours, the floodgates of the outfalls are opened when there is projected into the river two continuous columns of decomposed fermenting sewage, hissing like soda water, with baneful gases so black that the water is stained for miles and discharging a corrupt, carnal house odour that will be remembered by all who have passed through it on these summer excursions as being particularly depressing and sickening. It was into this, after a recent discharge, that the survivors were plunged. The scene was utter chaos. Swallowing the water could be potentially lethal, cause accelerated dehydration or asphyxiation. There are reports of survivors dying later from the effects. It is possible that if the accident had happened further downriver, passengers might have been able to swim more safely. Then again, it seems probable that even in clear water, the sheer number of people caught below decks on an overcrowded ship would have made casualties inevitable. It isn't known precisely how many lived or died. The debate over blame 
raged in the press and various courtrooms, and even today it remains contentious. There's a newspaper quote here that blames the design of the Princess Alice, the actions of the captain, and what might be termed a culture of corporate arrogance at the London Steamship Company that owned her. Quote, The diving carried on preliminary to raising the vessel, which is expected to float in two, if not three, parts, led to the not unexpected discovery a vast number of passengers were drowned in the saloon. The condition of the ill-fated princess revealed its utter unseaworthiness. It was literally broken into three parts. My dear sir, said my companion, who lives on the river in an official capacity, these so-called saloon steamers are little better than floating platforms. Eggshells that go down on the smallest contact with anything like iron or timber. The London Steamboat Company ought to be prosecuted. This vessel, with its boasted 30-foot beam, hasn't 20 foot. The breadth is pricked out by planking. It is a mere platform, planked in. The description given by the captain of the Bywell Castle of its condition is quite true. Moreover, passenger steamers have no business on the Thames hereabouts after dark. The river is full of heavy shipping, masses of wood and iron, not easy of control at certain states of the tide. The captain of the Princess Alice was out of his course. He was avoiding the rush of the tide by making a circuit in which he steamed through calm water. They continually do this. There is not an excursion day passes. When they don't, risk the lives of their passengers. They are like the handsome cabmen who think the London streets belong to them. They think that the river is theirs and that everybody else must get out of their way. This by one castle fellow who ran into the Princess Alice could not get out of the way. It is hard to judge the dead, perhaps, but facts are stubborn tongs and there is no getting out of the position which the two vessels occupied at the time of the collision. End quote. And that's a quote I found on the Kent History Forum, which has a fascinating set of sources um, from various eyewitnesses, newspapers and journals covering the event. The captain of the Bywell Castle was clear in his statement of events. Quote, Immediately I saw that collision was inevitable. I stopped the engines and ran forwards myself, finding that the people on the forecastle were saving life by throwing ropes overboard and hauling people up over the bows. I came aft again and got together the chief engineer, the cook, the donkeyman and the steward and sang out to get out the starboard aft boat, which was soon done. By this time we were joined by some of the passengers who had been saved and I called loudly upon them to help and assist in pulling out boats. After getting out the starboard aft boat, we put out the port aft boat, and then the port lifeboat. After this, I was kept doing all I could, and had at the same time to keep the ship, which was rapidly drifting down in position. The first two boats were immediately surrounded, 
very nearly swamped by the people who floated round like bees, making the water almost black with their heads and hats and clothes. The lifeboat, the last boat launched, was, however, unable to save many lives, most of the people having by this time sunk exhausted. The three boats would hold 70 persons, but I should say they did not save more than 40. End quote. Somehow, inevitably, Princess Alice had only two lifeboats and couldn't launch them anyway, nor did she have enough life jackets or life rings for her immense number of passengers. Thames Waterman, who was nearby, swarmed to the scene in small boats, frantically trying to pick people up from the water. Superintendent William Alstein, head of the Police River Division, was summoned. He was at HQ by at least 0115 in the morning and began preparations for the day ahead. By daybreak, he was at the crash site in a steam pinnacle and the press was swarming. All police leave was cancelled and constables volunteered to work around the clock unpaid. The clean-up operation was immense. Coroners called for military assistance. The horrified Queen Victoria placed the whole Woolwich Arsenal military resource at the disposal of the civilian authorities to assist. Simply storing the dead bodies was a huge undertaking. The Queen donated 300 guineas, a large sum, and she also demanded answers and casualty lists. This was also a very local tragedy. A lot of the victims were from the same boroughs in London. Classes of schoolchildren on day trips had been wiped out. The watermen of the Thames and the river police were also a close community. London was reeling, but the response from the moment of the crisis showed the best and worst of the people. Many rallied behind the police and did everything they could to help, offering food and shelter to survivors or helping with the bodies. Others gave in to the worst side of their natures. Police had to chase off some looters from the crime scenes and when some drunk workmen invaded the police boats and waved knives at police, they were overpowered and the local magistrate gave them 14 days hard labour. Still, as always, human nature is dark in places, and it was suspected by the police at the time that some murder victims were passed off as victims of the accident. Dreadful search was joined by people who suspected they had loved ones aboard who were missing. One advertiser was searching for his wife's body. In a cruel irony, she had only gone on the Princess Alice because she was afraid of train crashes and thought the river would be safer. One steamship superintendent lost his wife, a three-year-old daughter and a 14-month-old son, as well as his mother-in-law and family friends. As the wreck was raised in sections, more and more bodies were recovered. Without refrigeration, storing them for identification called for a strong stomach. Eventually, mass graves had to be dug. 
almost inevitably, women from the local workhouses were called on to wash the decaying bodies and prepare them for burial. Perhaps they too saw familiar faces amongst the dead. The Metropolitan Police all donated six pence each from their wages towards the National Relief Fund. Many people sought comfort in religion. Some religious leaders were gravely concerned at the implications of the tragedy. They felt that a tragedy like this risked people's souls. If a person on a ship was faithful and ready for Christ, they felt, then no matter how sad the death, that person was now with Christ in heaven. But they were aware that there were people on the ship who weren't religious, or who weren't able to benefit from a priest to cleanse them in their final moments, and who might therefore have died and ended up damned. They therefore preached increased religious observance, reminding everyone that death could strike at any moment, so the faithful should prepare and help the non-faithful to return to the path lest they were unprepared as judgment struck. For the religious amongst the Victorians, and remember this was a huge, huge number, this warning was not to be taken lightly. A religious tract reflecting on the disaster stated, quote, We may be thinking that all the sorrow connected with the calamity might have been avoided if a little of the prudence which we ourselves always display had been called into exercise. Many are thinking and talking after this fashion today, but can you, with all the prudence you display, for which certainly no one will blame you, can you safely build on tomorrow? Has it been given to you to know what even a day may bring forth? You may escape accident, but are you possessed of any secret charm by which to stave off sudden illness? Or equally sudden death? Are you sure when you leave home in the morning for your daily engagements that you will return as usual to your family in the evening? He would be a bold man indeed and as foolish as bold who would confidently answer yes to these queries. Therefore, be ye also ready. End quote. Now whatever your religious faith, It is hard to disagree with the idea that life in the Victorian era could be unpredictable and cut short without notice. It would indeed be a brave Victorian who said that they were guaranteed to be alive that night. Quacks and charlatans latched onto the incident, offering seances to contact the lost. For those reading ahead, there's even a Jack the Ripper Association Because, of course, a Ripper victim, Long Sally, real name Elizabeth Stride, claimed she was aboard the Princess Alice with her husband, John Stride, who was a ship's carpenter. She claimed he died in the sinking, along with two of her children, and she was kicked in the mouth whilst swimming free, causing her to stutter. This is extremely unlikely, Just for starters, John Stride was actually recorded as dying of tuberculosis in an asylum in October 1884. Sally wasn't listed on the official survivors list either. 
her post-mortem didn't find the damage to her palate expected from the injuries claimed. There were no other witnesses to put her aboard the boat and it is suspected that she was trying to use the claim to get money from a sympathetic Swedish church. All across the country though, people wanted answers. This was an enormous tragedy at the very heart of the country. The victims were mostly women and children. An exact death toll isn't possible, but it was somewhere around 600 to 700 dead out of the between 700 and 900 passengers on board. In percentage terms, that's actually higher than the death toll on Titanic. How could it have happened? The Board of Trade and the coroner both ran overlapping investigations, causing the coroner much annoyance. Public opinion was initially against the Bywell Castle and wrongly blamed her skipper, Captain Harrison, for being drunk in charge of the vessel, based on early unfounded claims from a survivor. The London Illustrated News printed sensational illustrations of the incident that were highly inaccurate and helped turn public opinion against Captain Harrison and the Bywell Castle. The public fury was so fierce that Captain Harrison was confined, was confined aboard the ship for two days. Now, imagine how that must have affected him psychologically. He was probably already reeling with the shock and responsibility of the collision. The evidence would show, though, that the Bywell Castle had seen the Princess Alice in good time and was trying to take proper action under the regulations. The Board of Trade Investigation announced its conclusions on the 6th of November, 1878. Quote, The Board of Trade concluded their hearing, finding that the Princess Alice had swung across the bows of the Bywell Castle and that the Princess Alice was not properly and efficiently manned. Also, that the numbers of persons aboard her were more than was prudent and that the means of saving life on board the paddle steamer was inadequate for a vessel of her class. End quote. In the separate coroner's inquiry, the coroner spent the entire of the 13th of November 1878 summing up. Then he locked the jury in the courtroom for a long, cold night's deliberations. On the 14th of November 1878, they gave the following verdict. Quote, that the death of the said William Beachy and others was occasioned by drowning in the waters of the River Thames from a collision that occurred after sunset between a steam vessel called the Bywell Castle and the steam vessel called the Princess Alice, whereby the Princess Alice was cut in two and sunk, such collision not being willful, that the Bywell Castle did not take the necessary precaution of easing, stopping and reversing her engines in time, and that the Princess Alice contributed to the collision by not stopping and going astern, that all collisions in the opinion of the jury might in future be avoided if proper 
and stringent rules and regulations were laid down for all steam navigation on the River Thames. The jury made four additional findings. 1. We consider that the Princess Alice was, on the 3rd of September, seaworthy. 2. We think that the Princess Alice was not properly and sufficiently manned. 3. We think that the number of persons on board the Princess Alice was more than was prudent. 4. We think that the means of saving life on the Princess Alice were insufficient for a vessel of her class. End quote. The upshot was that the Bywell Castle and Captain Harrison were exonerated and the Princess Alice was held to blame. As for why she was carrying so many passengers, well, a poem of the time made it clear it must have been down to corporate greed being placed over safety. No criminal charges were brought, though. Captain Grinstead and his family had gone down with the ship. The tone-deaf London Steamship Company, owners of the Princess Alice, tried to sue the owners of the Bywell Castle for damages. This was unsuccessful. The Bywell Castle case became widely cited in other legal judgments around the world since it established a key principle set out by Lord Justice James. Quote, But I desire to add my opinion that a ship has no right by its own misconduct to put another ship into a situation of extreme peril and then charge that other ship with misconduct. My opinion is that if in that moment of extreme peril and difficulty such another ship happens to do something wrong so as to be contributing to the mischief, that would not render her liable for the damage inasmuch as perfect presence of mind, accurate judgment and promptitude under all circumstances are not to be expected. End quote. Bywell Castle 4 LR PD 219. In other words, just because Captain Harrison hadn't made a textbook perfect response, once the Princess Alice was in front of him, he isn't suddenly at fault for the whole incident. Still, he was a broken man, and he never commanded a ship again. The dead were recovered and buried. Memorials raised, which you can still see today. Above all, though, there was a safety blitz. The regulations were tightened and enforced. Police were equipped with steam vessels rather than rowboats. Sewage would have to be pumped out to sea, not into the Thames. Passenger numbers were limited. Life belts and safety equipment were required. Passenger numbers were limited. Ships were required to have watertight bulkheads so that they wouldn't sink so quickly when hold. The winds of expense or time-honoured customs of the river cut no ice. Public safety first was non-negotiable. In a cruel twist of fate, the Bywell Castle herself was soon to sink at sea in a storm. I tried to go into this into quite a lot of detail, not just because that's the way I do things on this podcast, and I sure you've probably already noticed that. It isn't just because it sets the context better, showing how the Victorians 
actually dealt with serious accidents. Although again, I think that's interesting and important to recognise. Well, it's in part that tragedies like this tend to just appear on the kind of list that is called Worst Disasters in London or 100 Worst Maritime Disasters or things like that. And then you get a brief and usually pretty inaccurate description and a body count. I've tried to show you how this event actually happened. Beyond just appearing on a list, it had causes. It had a real impact on people's lives. It's more than just a rating by death count on some list. And it was a real event that happened to the Victorians. Like a modern car crash disaster on a motorway is to us, the Victorians did what we would do today. They reacted as best they could with the technology they had and displayed as much compassion as we do today. This show is not really about a ship that sank. It is about the humanity. Hopefully, it has made you feel closer to the humans who lived and died in the Victorian past. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.